If there was an easy answer to the question, nobody would be paying you to solve it. You acted for Rachel McGregor in the defamation case involving Colin Craig. Probably could have done a bit better, better at law school if I'd spent a bit more time studying and a little bit less time organising protests. It's not all about just training people to become practising lawyers. It's much broader than that. That's, that's right. At that point, you've got to make a decision for yourself about what kind of lawyer do you want to be. Today on the File Notes podcast, we are joined by Hayden Wilson, New Zealand Chair and Partner at Denton's, the largest global law firm in the world. Hayden has practiced law for more than 20 years with particular expertise in public, regulatory and commercial litigation. And he's been involved in some of New Zealand's highest profile litigation cases in recent memory. In this episode, we talk about why Hayden chose law over medical school, his passion for politics, becoming a partner at a prestigious firm, and of course, his involvement in litigation against former Conservative Party leader, Colin Craig. Today's episode is sponsored by VXT, the phone system built for law firms. VXT integrates with practice management systems so that when lawyers make calls, their billable time and legal advice can be saved in the right place automatically. 20% of billable time goes unrecorded. A lot of that is phone calls that get forgotten about. Get some of those billables back using VXT. Go to vxt.co.nz or click the link in the description to find out more. Now on to our conversation with Hayden Wilson. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Hayden. It's super exciting to catch up with you again. You're a self-professed politics nerd, and you have been for a long time. Could you tell me about how you got so interested in politics and why? Mostly it came um, just before uh, I went to university. It was a reasonably um, torrid time for university students. We had the um, fees and student loan system was, was being introduced, and that sort of got me thinking about uh, politics. I mean, I come from a family where we always discussed politics around the around the dinner table. But when it when it really started to actually, you know, when you actually see how it was going to affect you, um, that got me more and more and more interested in it. And so one of the things I decided to do when I was at, at law school was, or when I was at university, um, was to study politics as well. At the same time, I got involved in the students' association movement because that was a pretty exciting time for, well, exciting is probably not the right word. There was a lot going on in student politics and particularly education politics at the time, so it seemed like a kind of natural fit. It was a pretty crazy period for New Zealand um, around that time and, and shortly beforehand as well with, um, you know, things in the, I guess, prior decade around like Rogernomics um, and, and stuff like that, I guess. Um, so, yeah, that's really interesting. So what did that change look like in more detail? I understand, like, uni used to be free um, back in the day here in New Zealand. Um, obviously, um, fees were, were introduced. Um, access to student allowances was, was restricted. It, it, it went from being universal to, be, to being um, perennially means-tested. Um, and they introduced the student loan system. Um, so students were borrowing, and back then, um, 
you know, you were borrowing, but you were also paying interest because it was a it was a standard loan and and at, at at sort of reasonably commercial rates from the time you took out the loan. Um, so students were students were borrowing to oh, wow. pay for living costs. I mean, the living costs weren't anything like they are now. Um, but you know, you had this this period of time where university students um, were both paying fees and um, had full interest on the loans from the time that they were started. Um, and that sort of generation kind of got a bit squeezed between the ones who had a free education and the ones who've now got, um, you know, sure you've, you've still got student loans and, and that's a burden, but, um, but you know, the interest-free uh, element made a, made a real difference. Yeah, massive. Because like, what were the interest rates uh, in like, you know, the late nineties? I, I would have been pretty high, right? What I do remember though is um, I graduated. I went into practice as a lawyer, and I practiced for nine years. And my student loan was finally paid off uh, nine years later. The day I became a partner it was on my last employed salary that paid off my student loan. So it was. It was. You know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting we walked uphill both ways in the snow to get to university, um, but it was a pretty tough time compared to what you know what people had been expecting. Do you think that that made a difference to how many people wanted to study at the time? Like people dropped off. I'm sure it. I'm sure it did. Um, I mean, there were always sort of limited places, but what it probably did was um, restrict the kinds of people who were able to 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 undertake some of these courses. It is not just law, but medicine and dentistry was particularly expensive. And I mean, I haven't gone back and looked at the, at the, at the research, but I'd probably suspect that um, uh, those people, there were more people who were privileged who were able to carry on and, and, and do those things um, than what might otherwise have been the case. Yeah, interesting. It seems to me um, that you're in this somewhat unique position where your work today really revolves around this topic that you're so passionate about. You know, people often develop a passion for their craft um, as well. We touched on this a little bit already. Is that what happened for you? Or, you know, it sounds like you were interested in politics before you started. I always have been interested in in politics. It's a bit different now because... um, I'm sort of less interested in my job with substantive politics and much more interested in process and what what happened over the course of my law degree and my politics degree and then having seen it work in practice was I got quite interested in how things happen Um, and that's the bit where my my current professional life really, really intersects, you know, um, running a public law and a litigation practice um, in Wellington, most of the litigation is in some way involves the government. You're either acting for it or, or, or challenging it. Um, and that kind of interaction with the machinery of government and how things really actually work, how decisions get made, how decisions might get influenced, um, how you can challenge decisions, that's the stuff that always that sort of came to really interest me. You know, you did your Bachelor of, of Law at the University of Otago. Um, do you think that interest in politics helped you decide to study law? Um, failing out of med school, mostly, um, was what led me to doing law. Everyone told me I, I should be a lawyer. 
Um, <laughs> but I was determined that I was going to be a doctor. And um, it wasn't until trying to do first year med that I realized that medicine wasn't for me, um, which in hindsight probably turns out to have been a very good thing because I would have been a rubbish doctor. And I'd always been interested in, I, I, I kind of think most people told me that I thought I should be a lawyer because I was argumentative, um, which, I, which is probably a bit of a cliche. So I did it. I picked up law in actually my second year at university. And as soon as I, as soon as I started doing it, I realized that I, that I really liked it. And that for whatever reason, people were telling me they were right. Yeah, that's a really common story about the, um, you know, you, you, you often like to pick arguments as you're younger and then people, everyone tells you that you should, uh, you should be a lawyer. So yeah, that's, that's interesting. So while you were studying, you know, in 1997, you were VP of the New Zealand University Students Association. Jenny Shipley became New Zealand's first female prime minister. And the year prior was our first election under MMP, like this new electoral system. For a political nerd, that must have been like a pretty exciting time. And it really was. Um, yeah. I remember um, uh, before I'd actually taken up the role at NZUSA, um, I was up there and we were waiting for, the, for that first coalition decision, um, which was, who was Winston Peters going to go with? Um, it's amazing how history repeats uh, <laughs> as we sit here on the 11th of October. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was, I mean, that was kind of the next stage in getting interested in actually how politics works because um, back then the National Students Association was a reasonably significant political player in that it was just universities that were, that were members, but you were you were taken quite seriously. You didn't get your way almost ever, um, but you were taken quite seriously, and you were involved in a lot of discussions about um, academic quality and academic courses and policy development in the, in the tertiary sector student support, student jobs, that sort of stuff. So that was that was a real opportunity to kind of get properly involved in, in politics at the coalface. How did you start out? Down at Otago, which is where I started my degrees actually from Victoria, because after I left NZUSA, I went to Victoria University to finish my degree. But when I was down there, it was, um, it was quite a kind of febrile environment for politics. You know, there'd been student riots the year before and occupation of the of the registry and we had a um a pretty charismatic student president who went on to be the minister of finance uh, in this last government and that sort of drew in a bunch of people um a number of whom are still very very good friends of mine from that time into being interested in in students association yeah and it sounds like also um, interested in the understanding of like how do uh, these elected officials who get given the power by um, the public, how do they actually turn that power into like effects on the ground, like after they you know implement policies and stuff like that. So thinking about maybe more what your work is focused on today. And when you think about that, that's effectively what public law is. You know, it's, it's, it's the how the power is exercised and the effect that it has on people. Do you think, it sounds like it was a really formative time at university, getting involved in student politics. It was crazy in New Zealand more broadly. How do you think that influenced your career? Probably could have done a bit, bit, 
better at law school if I'd spent a bit more time studying and a little bit less time organising protests. <laughs> and I think that the experience meant that I had a tendency to look sort of a bit further than the kind of the black and white that we're often taught at university and think more about, well, yeah, sure, that's what the law says, but what actually happens in practice, um, which is still a skill that I use often today. On that topic, do you think law school prepared you well for becoming a practicing lawyer? Huh. It's funny because it's a, that's a discussion I've had with a couple of um, law school professors, actually. I mean, yes and no, but also training people for uh, for being private practice lawyers is not the whole or even a major purpose of law school. One of the things that I think is great about law school teaching in in New Zealand, certainly how I experienced it, was that it gave you a a set of skills and a way of thinking that could be applied to a bunch of different things. It didn't just assume that there was one kind of lawyer, because there isn't one kind of lawyer. I mean, we've you know, there's you've got people in in private practice, you've got people working for the government in house council, you've got bunch of people in policy and then you've got hundreds of thousands of people probably who have legal training who are doing other jobs but are using those kinds of analytical skills to do them yeah so it's not it's not all about just training people to become practicing lawyers it's much broader than that that's that's right i mean i think you know sitting where i'm sitting now you know as a partner in a major firm looking at the graduates coming out of law school, and they're all incredibly bright. Um, and um, you know, sometimes though, you do think that maybe law schools could use a little bit more, um, or spend a little bit more time on some of the more practical things that people actually use. Um, you know, one of my one of my big areas of practice is that I'm a mediator, um, so I. I mediate disputes, which is pretty rare for a lawyer and a firm. Um, but as a as a litigator, almost every litigator would tell you that the vast majority of their um, uh, of the disputes that they work with are settled either through negotiation or mediation or some other form of dispute resolution. And yet, there's nowhere near the focus on those skills at law school that that there is on civil procedure or evidence or, you know, all of those things. And maybe I'm a little out of touch with where law schools are at right now, but it's always felt to me like there was a bit of space for more of that practical training. Not for it to dominate. I mean, it's not it's not vocational education, right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a training in a, in a way of thinking, but um, I'm not sure the balance is quite right. That definitely resonates with me. I actually um, studied law. I went to law school and finished my degree. And I actually really enjoyed when I made it to my professionals, the practicality of it. It was a short course, but they gave you a lot more opportunity to do some more practical tasks that you might be given in a firm. And But something I was quite aware of is that the transition from studying to working, no matter the career, can be actually quite difficult and the reality of working can be vastly different than studying. Looking back, you know, when you started, what do you think some of those early challenges you faced moving from study to work were? I think it was about um, understanding where the principle gives way to actual practice. 
because the world is different from the world that you you see at law school and law schools the problems that you're given to solve they're set up so that there's two evenly balanced sides of the argument so that you can make the argument and and when you turn up at a at a law firm if there was an easy answer to the question nobody would be paying you to solve it for them and sometimes there's just no answer at that point you've got to make a decision for yourself about what kind of lawyer do you want to be do you want to be a lawyer who says well on the one hand this and on the one hand that which is basically useless to a client or are you someone who says well look these are the possible outcomes. I think this is probably where things would, would fall. Um, and here's a bunch of ways that you can mitigate your risk or do what you want to do in a different way. And that's much more practical lawyer. That's much more what clients want. Um, I mean, in the end, clients don't actually care about the law, right? And it takes a while, I think, and some lawyers never figure this out, that the law matters to, to, to lawyers. What matters to clients, particularly in my context, is solutions to business problems. And the law is a tool to get there. They could use other tools. In some problems, they could use an accountant as much as they use a lawyer in order to get to the solution. But the, the point being that the client doesn't care about the law bit, they care about the solution bit. Yeah, that resonates a lot with me as a client of law firms. You know, I think um, that's definitely something that um, that, that is kind of you know, front of mind for me. And then, and then especially even in another context dealing with our customers, you know, they're really just facing problems uh, that they want a solution to, and they don't necessarily, you know, the, the means isn't necessarily that important. Touching um, on the journey as a student, you know, how did the specific legal areas or practice areas that you were like super interested in at uni compare to what you have worked on through your career and maybe what you work on today? Pretty well, I think, actually. Um, probably by accident rather than by design. But I was always uh, interested in litigation, so I did all of the litigation courses. Um, I was always interested in public law and international law, so I did those courses. Looking back, I wish I'd done a bit more company law. Um, but um, and, and maybe a bit more trust law because a lot of the mediation stuff that I do now is in the trust space and I've had to upskill quite a lot on that. But yeah, it did, it did align. But I'm also kind of of the view, and, and I, I used to take this approach when I was doing recruiting. I don't do a lot of recruiting anymore for our firm, but um, I used to be quite involved in the grad recruitment program, that it was sort of less important what people had done because the law is constantly changing and you're always and, and no one ever asks you a question that's as straightforward um, as they are in, in law school. So what was important was how people approached problems and how they thought about problems rather than, you know, did they do civil procedure or did they do company law? Yeah, definitely. I think, again, kind of like your last question, that really ex extends into other areas outside of law as well, that kind of um, heuristic. So it's, it's fair to say that business and politics really mix. A lot of people shy away from sharing their own politics for fear of alienating people who might disagree with them, but would otherwise be great customers, partners, whatever. For you, kind of politics is, is well aligned with business. How do you navigate this combo? I uh, really like your Twitter, by the way, so I'll shout that out. So if anyone <laughs> wants to go check out Hayden's Twitter, it's Hayden Wilson NZ. 
So Yeah, and and there's there's more snark than politics on my Twitter, it's fair That's to true. say. Look, I'm I'm um I'm always a little bit conscious of the fact that I now represent a firm. Um a large number of employees in New Zealand, they don't all share my views. Um and I'm pretty clear that my social media doesn't reflect the views of the firm or in fact legal advice. I think it's okay that for people to take a position and take a view, um, so long as it's considered. And we should be big enough as a country to go, that person's politics don't align with mine, but they're a bloody good lawyer and they know how to get stuff done. And I think in the main, that's probably how most people approach it. Um, uh, I, I worry sometimes when I see the tribal political divisions that you see overseas and you see little glimmers of it from time to time here in New Zealand. I mean, I don't think I'm unfettered in what I can say. There's certainly I've deleted more tweets than I've tweeted. <laughs> yeah, um, totally. That's really interesting. And I, I think um, something you touched on, like, you know, New Zealand's a little bit different compared to other countries around the world. It feels like politics is often more of a taboo topic of conversation here. Um, you know, we're a very centrist and like middle of the road country compared to a lot of a lot of our compatriots out there in the world. Um, I guess, do you think that has a part to play in that kind of dynamic? Uh, I think so. We're not immune. Um, I mean, you shouted out my Twitter handle, but I've now left Twitter pretty much, and I've moved to Blue Sky um, because some of that um, some of that tribal vitriol was just getting a bit much. Um, so I don't think we're immune, and I think we should be really concerned to make sure that we don't go that way. Politics in New Zealand has, has always existed within a much narrower band than um, I think it does in some in some other countries. Um, and you don't quite have the same extremes. <clears throat> but, you know, that's, um, that's a privilege to be guarded and it's pretty easily lost and we've seen that in a number of other countries. You, know, you saw quite a bit of that in the social media commentary around the vote in, in Australia. Um, no one wants that here. Yeah, I totally agree. So you're working at Denton's and that was your first job out of law school and you've stayed there for your entire practicing career. And as far as I know, in today's legal environment, you know, graduates are far more likely to change roles, especially earlier on than maybe they used to. What do you think the benefits are of changing jobs less frequently? I never really thought about it like that. I mean, the way I've always thought about my own career is that I've planned to leave on a number of occasions and every time I just had one thing I wanted to finish because it was kind of interesting. And by the time I finished it, uh, the desire to move on had gone. Um, oh, look, there's benefits um, in sticking around at a place, but there's also benefits of... Um, to moving. There's certainly benefits to going overseas and getting wider experience. There's benefit to doing different kinds of jobs, not just because you figure out what it is that you like and what your passion is, but also because it makes you better because you understand things a bit, a, a bit more broadly. So I've had to find that in different ways, doing secondments with clients. My career, while I've been in one place, has shifted um, over the years to do, doing different things. 
So I'm not sure that, the, that one way is better than the other. Um, I think it just depends on, on who you are. Denton's is one part of a much larger global firm, generally recognised as one of the largest firms in the world. Given its size, Denton's probably, as I understand, would practice in every area. Is that correct? Uh, every area of commercial law and probably most areas of law somewhere in, in, in the world. I mean, we've got 212 offices um, around the world. The law is pretty different in uh, New Zealand than it is in Nigeria. And so the law firms are different sizes and they do different things. And, you know, as a global, as a global firm, um, we kind of knit that all together at a global level. How would you describe Denton's to someone that isn't familiar with it? Enormous. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I mean, Denton's is one of a very small group of truly global firms who, who um, uh, practice pretty much anywhere that you might um, want to, to, to do business. Um, and what that enables for me is to offer to my clients, um, doesn't really matter where they're, where they're doing business, if they're a New Zealand business who's just in New Zealand, well, we can help them there. If they're exporting around the world, well, we can put them in touch with you know, other members of our firm who we know are good because you know we chose them to join our firm, um, who can help them, whether it's you know Uzbekistan or New York. Um, yeah, but it's definitely enormous. <laughs> we had a partners meeting, uh, what, last year. I think there are about two and a half thousand people there. That's incredible. It sounds, you know, like there'd be a lot of obviously massive benefits to having such a large firm. I mean, you can cover all the bases between, um, you know, all of your options. But what would be the biggest challenges of working in such a global firm? Um, uh, coordination. Um, what clients want is, you know, particularly big global clients, is they want a one firm um, experience. They want it, it should feel the same wherever you are. Um, and that's I mean, that's hard at a domestic level. You know, just with here in New, in New Zealand with 36 partners, it's hard to make sure that everyone's always getting a consistent experience. And that's one of the things that we spend a lot of time working on here in New Zealand. And that complexity increases with scale. Um, one of the hard things that's related to that is that the law is practiced differently in different parts of the world. And so you've got to spend a reasonable amount of time understanding your own colleagues to know how you can take the way the law is practiced over there and fit it into what your client's expecting and needs here. And sometimes that, that can take a bit of work. Um, but the upsides are, are, are pretty incredible. You meet some fantastic people um, with incredible experiences and incredible experience um, and that's that's pretty um, that's pretty inspiring um, you know a lot of the times when you're you know talking with these people at, at board meetings and you know looking at what it is that they've done so this can make you feel a little bit small down here in New Zealand sometimes your practice specifically is made up of these three pillars traditional litigation 
mediation and alternative dispute resolution and then governance. Could you break those areas down in a little bit more detail with some sure. maybe some examples of what it looks like on a day to day? Yeah, so traditional litigation is just that, right? I'm I'm an advocate. I have always enjoyed arguing in court. I've always enjoyed um, helping people solve disputes. Uh, and so it, it is the standard fare of being a, uh, a litigator in a New Zealand firm. People come to you with a with a problem that they think going to court is the solution on and you help them navigate their way through that process. The mediation is kind of adjacent to that, right? Um, and it's a, a form of dispute resolution, consensual dispute resolution. And my job as a mediator is not to be an advocate for either side, but to kind of be an expert in disputes and negotiation and how they're solved and help um, help coach people towards finding a resolution if there's possible if there's a resolution that's possible. Working with the lawyers to kind of understand what the legal arguments are, help them understand what the strengths and weaknesses might be. Ultimately, it comes down to helping clients make an informed choice about whether or not their best option is to continue on to court, because that's usually the kinds of disputes that I'm working on, or whether there's a resolution that's available um, on a voluntary basis that they would prefer or at least could live with. And so that's very similar to my role as a litigator. It's kind of like I've shifted chair and shifted the hat that I'm wearing. And then the other part of my, my practice is, as you say, governance. So I'm the chair of the court uh, here in uh, New Zealand. So that involves a lot of representing the firm, um, working with partners and senior staff on development, um, helping set the strategy for the firm here in, in New Zealand. And then also I sit on the Denton's Global Board. So I have a, a sort of similar role, but at a global level with the firm as a whole, um, doing similar sorts of things. So today you're a partner at Denton's. Was this always a goal of yours? And what did your journey into partnership look like? Uh, certainly, I think the people around me um, about the time I became a partner would probably say that that was my, always my goal and I was pretty strident about it. It's funny because we were talking with um, a group of our senior staff today about the, the path to partnership. Traditionally, that was always the thing you did when you were in a large law firm, the goal was to get through to, through to partnership. And I think that's perhaps less the case now. Um, but I always wanted to be part of um, shaping the firm that I was in and helping you know, drive the direction of it. I was probably arrogant enough um, as a youngster to believe that I knew how to do it better than some people were doing it at the time. I think with the benefit of age, I think I've probably moderated that a bit. Um, but partnerships are—I mean, partnership is an interesting, interesting kind of business model, right? It's probably not how you'd choose to structure law firms if you were starting from scratch. But um, right now, but it does have some real benefits. You know, the relationships that you have with partners and the, the things that you share, the responsibilities that you share, create a slightly different environment than you would expect in a in a corporate. Um, and I think that's healthy and useful. It can be slow and frustrating, um, but I think overall it, it, it it's mostly seems to work. We mostly seem to muddle through, so do most of the other law firm partnerships in the country. On a really practical level, what were some of the steps that were important for you in becoming a partner? The most important, I think, is making that transition 
um, in responsibility from being someone whose primary job is to advise clients to someone whose job is to lead uh, and to generate business and understanding that that transition and what it requires um, I think was the was the most important change um, you know these days you know it used to be if you were a reasonably pleasant person and you were good at the law then if, you know someone they'd make you a partner of the firm and these days that things are a bit more complicated than that um, and law firms are reasonably big businesses and um, one of the challenges over the years I think in the in the legal profession and re one of the reasons why we've seen some of the challenges that we have is that lawyers have tended to be rewarded and promoted for being good lawyers and for um, working very very hard and not necessarily for being good people managers and good leaders if they were good people managers and good leaders that was mostly accidental rather than intentional and that I think is a real shift that you're seeing in the profession now um, with much more focus on um, the leadership responsibility the business responsibility and the team responsibility that, that goes with being a partner yeah that's that's a really interesting point and definitely I think you know, from my very surface level, uh, you know, dipping my feet into learning about the legal sector, you know, there's definitely a lot of kind of transitions away from kind of more traditional approaches to law that are happening. Yeah, you touched on that it takes a lot of hard work to become a partner and there might be a lot of other challenges on the way as well. What are some of the personal sacrifices you had to make to get to where you are today? I don't know. I mean, you're always looking back on these things and wonder whether there are things that you could have done differently. I certainly sacrificed a fair bit of sleep <laughs> over the years, but primarily that was to fit some of the other stuff in. You know, my son's 23. He's mostly a functioning human being as much as a 23-year-old can be. And I got to spend time with him on the, on, on the um, sidelines of football games. I've got to take him to school and to practices and things like that and um, you know some of that's some of that just gets squeezed in a bit but it's not just being a partner is a hard job being a lawyer is a hard job because you're a client service business and it doesn't really matter where you are if you've got where you are in the hierarchy if you've got responsibilities to clients clients are going to remind you of them all of the time and mostly that's because they've got important problems they they want solved um, and so you do have to go into this profession with the understanding that it's a service industry um, and that that has you know, certain demands like every other service industry has. Were there any specific mentors or individuals who played a pivotal role in your career advancement and development in the legal profession? Yeah, I had um, I had a few actually. We had a, both mentors and and bosses. I was lucky that I had a a group of bosses who pushed me pretty hard to do things well, and then gave me opportunities when perhaps I didn't think I was quite ready for them. And that's something that I'm I try and do myself. A couple of uh, people who were sort of outside of the firm who I looked up to and respected in terms of the way they went about 
the job that they, the jobs that they did. Uh, one in particular uh, uh, was a lawyer who who used to work with us. I remember being completely struck by the fact that clients would ring him up and ask them for advice on things that had nothing to do with the law. And that to me meant that he had completely got their trust. They actually wanted to talk to him because he was he gave wise counsel, not that he was gave um, you know legal answers. And that sort of stuck with me um, and um, I think helped me build a kind of curiosity for how... Um, how businesses work, um, which I still use and I still love. Um, I, I'm much, much happier talking to someone about how their um, complex manufacturing process works and trying to get my head around understanding it um, than talking to them about causes of action. What advice would you give to like a someone who's more junior in the legal profession when they're looking to find great mentors like you had? Look for people outside of the law. Um, uh, not just in the law. That's not to rule out lawyers. But, you know, the world's got materially more complicated um, than it was when I started practice. There are professions that um, didn't exist. Podcasters, for for, for instance. Um, And so so many more options. So um, reach out for people who are doing interesting things um, that might not be directly related to what you're doing because that'll make you better you can learn a lot from the uh, the lawyers around you if you're enough so take your mentorship from someone who does something else that you you are inspired by whether it's community service or innovation or just a way of doing things um look for that and and try and broaden your experiences as much as you can yeah, it's super valuable. Something I'm pretty interested in myself, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners would be, is that um, you acted for Rachel McGregor in the defamation case involving Colin Craig. Can you share a bit about what that experience was like? Um, long. Um, no, no, no I, I, I joke because that was... You know, one of the more valuable things that I think um, I've done in in my career, and I'm really thankful for, to the firm for for allowing Linda and I to do that. But it really did. One of the things that really underlined to me was just how unsatisfactory litigation is for the resolution of of disputes, but particularly ego disputes by individuals. There were multiple court cases. And the one that, that, that we were involved in, the direct one between Rachel McGregor and Colin Craig, was two weeks in the High Court and in the Court of Appeal. But there were, I forget how many other um, pieces of litigation that somehow related to this one specific set of events that I was left with the feeling that the formal legal processes are just a wholly inappropriate way of trying to resolve those issues. Um, and it really did feel to me, acting for Rachel, that she was sort of in the centre of it um, and was kind of mostly irrelevant to the mostly men who were fighting over other things uh, uh, around her. And um, I, mean, I, don't, I don't think it was the law's finest hour, um, but, I mean, the law didn't have any choice about that. What are some of the biggest difficulties when you're managing a case like this that's so 
heavily in the public eye. I mean, a lot of people knew about it and were really interested. Mostly. Um, we were just focused on the job at hand because we had to be pretty you know, ruthlessly efficient about getting that case to trial and resolving it, um, or to, to getting it um, resolved by the courts. That sort of external stuff doesn't much come into the management of the case, if you can avoid it, because being counsel in a major court case is pretty all-consuming, whatever the subject matter is. Um, so you don't really have a lot of time for the, for, for the extraneous stuff. You touched on the uh, potential failings, you know, within um, law and I suppose litigation more specifically in New Zealand. How would you think about the ways in which litigation in New Zealand should change in the future? Like, how would you change the profession mm. if you had the chance to? I think um, uh, on a subject matter level, I think, defamation law needs a look at in New Zealand. We're not as bad as, as, as some other places, but it's it's not working. Procedurally, I think it's hard because whenever people are resolving the kinds of disputes that go to the High Court, you know, there are big issues at stake and so people are going to throw everything everything possible at it. But I um there have been some developments, particularly overseas, about making um litigation more efficient and more cost-effective. I mean, it is an enormously expensive exercise uh, to try to, to be involved in. Um, so in New South Wales, they've experimented with ways of limiting discovery and, and trying to force people to front-load evidence and, um, and really think very carefully about the cases before they bring them because they're stuck into very, very tight timeframes after that happens. I think there's some procedural stuff that we can do to ensure that um, lower-level disputes are, are resolved more easily and more quickly. You could very sensibly increase the um, the level of the um, of the disputes tribunal, which is actually something the rules committee's um, proposed. Increase the district court level so that high, the high court is only really kept for those largest of the of the commercial cases. I don't know enough about some of the other areas of law and family law in particular where um, there is, you know, there are always constant cost concerns. I don't know enough about those areas to, to know how to fix them. Um, I think, and I'm biased here because I'm a mediator, but I think there is a real role for um, more of a kind of structured encouragement of mediation and alternative dispute resolution. But it is sort of one of those one of those areas where it doesn't matter what you do, the stakes are so high it's going to get ramped up anyway. But I think we've got kind of got an obligation to to think hard about what we can do to change it. Um, because otherwise you've got people who are choosing not to go to court or who can't defend cases simply because they can't afford it and and that's not right. Yeah, I really like what you said there around, um, you know, increasing the role of mediation in um, resolving disputes. I feel like, uh, you know, maybe that would put forward more of a aura of collaboration instead of competition in a lot of these situations. Well, to close us out, I've got a bit of a quick fire round that I'd love to take you through, Hayden. So what I want you to do is I'm going to ask you a question 
and I would love it if you would just give me kind of the first thing that comes into your your head, maybe just a sentence or so. So starting off, what do others not know that you know to be true? Almost nothing, I suspect. (laughs) So what do people not understand about law that you wish they did? That it's actually about solving problems. What single element would you want to change about the legal industry today? Efficiency, probably. The billable unit. Yeah, you're a fixed fee man. Oh, look, I, I tell you what, if I was instructing a lawyer, I would be. Nice. What's the most painful lesson you've learned that you're pleased to have learned? Uh, my old boss used to say that if you're not worried you're, that you're underprepared uh, at the start of a, a hearing, then you haven't prepared enough. Well, cool. Thanks so much uh, for speaking with us today, Hayden. It was a pleasure to talk to you and learn more about your craft and uh, Denton's as well. Really appreciate it. No worries at all. Yeah. So what are you working on? Share with people how they can follow up with you, um, what they should go and take a look at of yours. Well, um, picking up on the efficiency and and involvement in mediation, um, one of the super talented senior associates that I work with and I did a um, a, po- a, a webinar for the Arbitrators and Mediators Institute and the NZ Bar Association on it's called Does Compromise Compromise Justice? How do you can encourage mediation um, in within our justice system? It's available on the web and I'd suggest people go and check it out. You can probably find it on my LinkedIn somewhere. Awesome. So yeah, definitely go and reach out to Hayden on LinkedIn and we'll put a link to that webinar on our website and in the description of the podcast. Thanks a lot. It was great to chat, mate. Awesome. Thanks, guys.